So, thinking a lot about generosity these last couple of weeks, I was remembering my own family growing up. Uh, we grew up in a Christian tradition, and my parents were faithful in their practice of that Christian tradition that understood generosity primarily by their financial contributions to the church. And they understood uh, in that tradition that uh, the biblical mandate is to give a 10% tithe of all of your income. Now, we can find references to that in the Old Testament, where God instructs the Israelites to bring 10% of their uh, offering, that is, in an agrarian society, their crops, their livestock, etc., to bring 10% of everything because, as it says in uh, Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and other places, because it belongs to the Lord. And so you bring a 10% tithe of everything. In fact, that word tithe comes from the Hebrew word for tenth or 10%. So a 10% tithe is actually a redundant phrase. <laughs> tithe means 10% of what you have that you give back to the Lord. And so my parents, very faithfully, every month, I would watch them at the dining room table whenever their income came in and checks, and it was all hard checks back in those days. There was no uh, online deposits. They would first take 10% of that and write a check to the church and set that aside before they paid any bills or bought anything. That was their practice. They lived in that tradition, which I appreciate growing up in that household and being formed and shaped in that way. And over the years, I have experienced traditions and uh, communities and households that have wrestled with a variety of other ways to be faithful in their generosity. Some, in more recent years, I've heard describe what they call a social tithe. And what they mean by that, or at least the rationale that I've heard, is that because in biblical times, that is in the first century and the many centuries before uh, Christ, the church or the community of faith was really the only place where people who were in need could find help. Uh, that is, uh, people who were hungry, people who were homeless, people who were naked, people who were in prison, all the things we read about in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 of serving the least of these. But today, thanks be to God, we have a wide social safety network of nonprofits and food banks and uh, a variety of other ways in which people's needs can be met. And so I've heard some suggest that in this modern environment, one might give 5% of one's income to the church and 5% of one's income to a wide variety of other ways in which we meet the needs of the least of these. We live into that Matthew 25 commitment. Now, my point this morning isn't to advocate for one or another of these, but to suggest that there are a variety of traditions in which people have wrestled with how to be faithful in their generosity, how much of their stuff they are meant to be generous with. And in those and other traditions, I have encountered people wrestling at the finite level of detail and trying to figure out exactly how to be faithful in their generosity. Am I supposed to tithe my pre-tax income or my taxable income? And, and what if I get a refund on my taxes from the government? Am I supposed to tithe that? And what about my side hustle where I make a little extra income in addition to my primary income? Or if I have a required distribution out of my IRA, am I, you know, and so people get into like all of the details of these kinds of things in a sort of legalistic way. Even further beyond that, there is a whole tradition of what we sometimes call the prosperity gospel. 
that believes that my generosity is meant to uh, trigger God's response to me in a very calculative way. And we read about this in the New Testament where Jesus and Paul and others suggest that as I sow, not uh, sparingly, but sow generously, so I shall reap generously. And there are scripture references to receiving a hundredfold. And for some, they take that literally, that if I give a dollar to the church, then I expect God to give me a hundred dollars back. There is this kind of calculating about generosity and the response that we get back in generosity all of which I think is ridiculous, to be fair, right? To be so legalistic about how we live a life of generosity is, I think, entirely missing the point of the spiritual discipline and practice of generosity. We're not intended to be legalistic. On the other hand, there's something to be said for having a particular way of approaching our practice of generosity because the opposite extreme from legalism is, to be fair, laziness, that is, to not consider at all how we might want to make a practice of generosity. And let me give you an example. Several years ago, I was talking with a, a mom of a household uh, in a group that was discussing generosity, having a similar conversation to this. And she said, you know, we, we don't really worry about it uh, in our household. We're just generous whenever uh, we feel like it or whenever something comes up that we respond to, like, uh, disaster relief, or we have a friend who needs something, um, and, and so we just kind of respond to things as they happen, and uh, I just said, well, how is that going for you? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, do you feel like that's working out in a way that you're comfortable with? Because ultimately, this is between you and God, right? Um, and she said, well, I don't know, and because I knew her well enough, um, we had a good enough relationship that I could nudge just a little bit. I said, well, do you do the, the taxes for your house? And she said, yeah, married, filing jointly. I fill out our tax forms every year. I said, okay, so when you filled it out this last year, there's a box on there where you write down a number of your annual charitable contributions. She said, right. And I wasn't asking her how much it was. I just said, when you wrote down that number, how did you feel about it? Oh, she said. Actually, I didn't feel good about it at all. She said, I was surprised. It was a lot less than I thought it was going to be. And again, my point wasn't to judge whatever she and her household gave. It, it was simply to offer an invitation that uh, this kind of laissez-faire approach also maybe isn't quite the right way to think about generosity. We can be either overly legalistic or overly lazy, perhaps. And so it occurred to me that maybe there's some happy medium in the middle, somewhere that we can think about this in a healthy and helpful way. And then I realized Maybe you're thinking about this in entirely the wrong way to begin with. You see, a few years ago at the church I served in Lake Forest, Illinois, uh, there was a men's group that met regularly, and sometimes I would meet with them. Uh, during a period of time, they were reading a book by Patrick Morley. Uh, Patrick Morley has written a number of best-selling books on men's spirituality over the years, and they were reading one of his books in which he was talking about uh, a life of significance and service uh, rather than a life of success, kind of the second half of life way of orienting our lives. Some of us last month read Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward, that kind of gets at the same idea. And one of the guys in the group said, you know, I recently retired, and I suddenly have all this time on my hands, <laughs> and trying to figure out what to do to stay busy, which certainly made sense. He said, I'm trying to figure out how much of my time I should 
give back? You know, should I give an hour a day or a day a week? I'm trying to figure out sort of how to calculate my time to be faithful in giving back something to God. And that sparked a really interesting conversation about kind of uh, not only time, but talent and treasure, as we often use that uh, alliterative phrase. And people started talking about calculations and some of these things. And I was just about to jump in with my own little anecdote about tithing and all of the boring things I just told you all about over the last 10 minutes. And thankfully, somebody else jumped in. A guy named Tom from the book group. Tom said, you know, guys, I've been reading Patrick Morley's stuff for years. And here's the thing. I think at the heart of it, what Patrick is really getting at is something about surrender. About surrendering everything. All that you are, all that you have to God. Acknowledging that all we have in everything of who we are is a gift from God. None of it's ours. He said, we're just stewards of it. We're just managing it on God's behalf. None of it is our stuff to begin with. Which meant a lot because this guy had a lot of stuff. (laughs) And so it was really something for him to say that. He said, I think asking the question, how much do we give, is a good question. It's an important one to ask. But it's not the place where we start the conversation, he said. I start with the idea that we give everything because it's all God's to begin with. And I leaned back and I thought, thank God somebody else spoke up before I did. Because he's right. Tom was right. None of what we have is ours. It's not about us managing or dividing up our stuff with some of it being God's. Everything is God's. In our Reformed tradition as Presbyterians, we have a way of thinking about this. We call it the sovereignty of God. That is that God is not only over everything, but God is everything and provides everything. You might recall a few weeks ago, if you were here on World Communion Sunday, I was wearing a a garment, a smock from Ghana, West Africa. It had a symbol on it, which is called the Gi-Nyami symbol, uh, which literally translated in English means accept God. That is that there's nothing in the world and we have nothing in the world except from God. It's a wonderful reminder that everything belongs to God. All of creation, all of our resources, all of our time and talents, all of it's been put into our care. And that, I think, is the starting point, then, for how we think about the what of generosity. It's one thing for someone to be invited to think about being generous with their stuff. It's an entirely different posture for us to realize that none of it was our stuff to begin with. And as I said at the beginning, that's an extremely challenging posture for us to hold right now in a world in which so much of our nature and nurture, so much of what we hear in messages from the world, drives us to understand that what we own is what we've earned, or maybe even what we deserve. Instead, life events happen, I think, that can occasionally shake us out of that reality. Though I hope it doesn't take those life events all the time. Let me give you just a couple of examples, one at sort of the personal level and one at the corporate level, about being shaken out of that sense of self towards this sense that everything belongs to God. About 10 days ago, Miriam and I took a very quick trip back to Michigan to be with family, uh, to be with my side of the family, because my mom's sister, my Aunt Ruthann, is in hospice care. She is dying from cancer and probably in her last couple of days. 
And uh, we wanted a chance to visit with her before she passed. Um, and the blessing of that time was that I did get to spend some time with her, and it was a particularly good day where we had a wonderful conversation and closure. Part of the time that we were there, though, we spent at her house packing up all of her stuff. And even as faithful a believer as my dear Aunt Ruthann is, the reality is she can't take any of it with her. None of it. She's lying in a wonderful, beautiful, peaceful bed in a hospice care center with just a few things around her. Everything, everything that she has accumulated over her 70-some years of life, she can't take with her. And so it's kind of a, an amazing reality, and I know many of you have been through this with a parent or a loved one who's passed away. You, you sort through stuff and you realize, yeah, none of this was really theirs to begin with. And so we find ourselves now as family stewarding her stuff on behalf of God because it was never really her stuff to begin with. And the nearly new washer and dryer that she bought last year is given away to a family who doesn't have one. And the bed in the guest room that was nearly never slept in gets given away to a family who needs one. And as we sort through everything, we realize, yeah, none of this matters in the grand scheme of things. It was all God's to begin with, and we are simply stewarding it now on her behalf, which is really on God's behalf. We recognize at the individual level in those moments, and yet I hope we can have the perspective of holding all the time in our lives that we're only stewarding stuff on God's behalf. Not only our physical stuff, but the stuff of our time and our talent, our health and our other resources as well. This summer, I was also aware of that on a corporate level, because as we celebrated the 150th anniversary of First Presbyterian Church of Fort Collins, I became increasingly aware that generations of faithful men and women and their families have stewarded this faith community in order to hand it off to us in this particular moment in time to be a vibrant community of faith and a witness to Fort Collins so that we in our time can also steward it. That's what we're doing here. This isn't our church. I never, when I'm out and about, talk about my church because this isn't my church. All of us here together are only corporately stewarding the resource of this vibrant faith community so that someday we will hand it on to the next generation. And so whether I'm here for another five years or another 15 years, it doesn't matter. At the end of that time, I hope that I will look back and not wonder how did things go during my tenure when I was the pastor of my church. No. How were we faithful and effective at stewarding this church, God's church, in order to best hand it off to the next generation? That's how we think about stewardship. So again, all of this really gets back to this idea of surrender, and the reason why I chose this passage from, Matthew's gospel, uh, from John's gospel this morning, because when Jesus talks about laying down one's life for one's friends as an expression of love, of course we read that the literal sense that Jesus intends, because he will be betrayed, crucified, and die. He will literally lay down his life for his friends. But I don't think that's what he intends for us to take from that message, at least not entirely. What we're intended to understand is that we lay down all of ourselves, all that we have, all that we are on behalf of our friends, our stuff, our agenda, and our ego. Our ego, which orients us towards thinking that the world is about us and our own safety and security, instead orienting us, 
outward so that we can better be in relationship, in communion with one another as we live lives of generosity. There's a wonderful theologian, Kenneth Bracken, who has done some creative interpretation work from uh, Scripture. Bracken says that the actual translation from the book of Leviticus, the Torah, is you shall love your neighbor as being your own self. As being your own self. What he means by that is that we must recognize in our essential community or communion with one another that we have no true self except the one that comes into being by being in the act of love and self-emptying with others. It's only through loving the other that myself actually emerges in the mystery of Christ. There's no such thing as one who is only an individual, Bracken says, but instead we are always people in relationship, in baptismal and Eucharistic communion with God and others. I think I've shared before there's a, a wonderful uh, phrase or word or philosophy that gets at this that comes from South Africa called Ubuntu. Now, uh, while it's originally a South African concept derived from the languages of Kosa and Zulu, it became a globally recognized idea when uh, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu used it as a concept in his anti-apartheid work through the 1980s and 90s. Desmond Tutu said, Ubuntu is the essence of being human, meaning that a person cannot exist in isolation. We think of ourselves far too frequently just as individuals separated from one another, Whereas in truth, we are connected, and what we do affects the whole world. My humanity is caught up, Tutu says, is inextricably bound up in yours. We belong to one another in a bundle of life. A person is a person through other persons. For many, Ubuntu is defined as a person uh, being in relationship with one another. That is, I only truly know myself or can become myself by being in relationship with others. And that's not just an idea, but it's a practice. That when we approach another person, we ask ourselves, how can I act in a way that will increase their humanity and in turn increase my humanity as well? If you do some reading about Ubuntu, there's a wonderful illustration sometimes used about an anthropologist who is trying to get at this um, in South Africa and conducts an experiment. He buys a bag of candy from a local village and puts it in a brightly colored basket and sets it under a baobab tree and then takes a group of children about 100 yards away and says, kids, we're going to play a game. We're going to race. And you're going to race across the field and whoever gets to the tree first gets all the candy. Wow. It's a good story for Halloween time, right? So the kids all nod their heads and he says, okay, here we go. On your mark, get set, Go. And the kids look around at one another, and they all take hands, and they skip across the field together, and then they all sit around the tree, they dump out the bowl, they equally divide up all the candy, and they start chomping away. The anthropologist runs after them and finally catches up and says, kids, did you not understand the instructions? <laughs> did you not get how the game is played? And one of the kids said, how could any of us be happy eating candy if the others didn't have any, and they were sad? A wise elder who was observing this experiment from the side of the field said, that's Ubuntu. That's what we mean when we say Ubuntu. This generous pouring out of ourselves for others. 
which is a more holistic way, I think, of understanding Jesus' command to lay down our lives. It's part of how God has created us to be. Generously offering our whole selves, all that's been entrusted to me by God, to manage on God's behalf. It's not only a blessing for others, not only a witness of God's love as Christ's hands and feet for others, it also transforms us to be more fully the people that God has created us to be. And of course, if we're honest, that orientation and lifestyle compels us in a way that is not a lazy or casual lifestyle, merely responding to invitations of generosity. It's not a legalistic, carefully calculated formula completing a transaction between us and God. Instead, rather than a transaction, it is an invitation to transformation, to be more and more the people, the kind of people, the Christ-centered people that God intends for us to be. Friends, this morning I want to close with a prayer from a colleague, Douglas McKelvey, who I think eloquently and beautifully helps us in prayer uh, to get at this idea that we're reflecting on this morning. And so as we enclose, I invite us to pray. In truth, I have nothing but you, O Christ, nothing that I might call my own. So let that good confession now compel a better stewardship. First, teach me to treasure you, Jesus, above all things, and then let that increasing devotion be increasingly demonstrated in a joy-filled generosity. For to give is to live out the declaration that you alone are my provision and supply. I need not fear what comes tomorrow. When I give to meet the needs of others, when I give to the work of those who serve the poor, the sick, the oppressed, when I give to the service of your body and your kingdom, I give not what is mine, but only what is already yours. With every charitable act, I'm simply practicing the fact that nothing which passes through my hands ever did belong to me. You are my generous master. Make me your faithful trustee, teaching me to live as a wise conduit of this liberal grace, learning to hold loosely the things of this world, never hoarding that which is yours, never seeking the mean preservation of my own comforts. Rather, let me love well in my giving, even as you have loved me so well by giving me all things in Christ. Let me make each offering without thought of temporal gain. Let me give precisely because I have believed your promises are true. And let my giving be the proof if you are my shepherd. Then I am freed to live generously, knowing I will never want. Knowing that any seeming deprivation is but the work of your spirit, weaning me from a world of things and winning me to greater dependence on you. So why should I grasp at that which I cannot keep? This body will sleep in death, and what I now hold so briefly will pass into the keeping of another. Truly, I own nothing here. I have no claim. Dispel the myth of my possessions, lest they taint that better hope of heaven. Rather, let me learn while I draw breath to live with open hands and joy-filled heart, investing your resources in your good works. Let me plant these mortal seeds in expectation of an immortal harvest. Use me, use all that I am, all that you have entrusted to me for works of love and mercy and unto the increase of your glory. And let all God's people say, Amen.